All right, Ryan, that's good enough for me, brother. Thank you. All right. Before I uh, speak again, I'd just like to pray one more time. My name is Eric Drury. I am a missionary to the Philippines. I'm the founder and director for Only Seven Ministries. We've been working in the mission field of the Philippines since 2016. Uh, previously, my home church was Dodge Center, Minnesota. And uh, I moved about a year and a half ago to Amity, Arkansas, and that's now my home church in Amity. I have a laundry list of names of people here I'm supposed to seek out and say hi to from my friends there because most of us there in Amity are transplants. So please don't assume that uh, if I'm asking you your name, I'm trying to investigate you. <laughs> I just want to say hi from other people who know you. Um, or primarily, I guess I could say hi from Jesus. He loves you so much. It's amazing when I look out and see your faces. I'm actually looking at the faces of people that Jesus died for. I mean, you ever thought about that, how amazing that is? It's an amazing thing to think about. So I'll tell you a little bit about our ministry, and then I'm going to tell you more about Jesus. Um, I decided years ago that I wasn't going to travel the country and share mission trip stories and show exploitative uh, pictures of children lying half-naked and starving and then pass around the hat and beg for cash. We don't do that. Uh, we never ask for money. That's God's business between you and him. We don't need to ask. He provides. And we don't want to exploit children. So we'll show you the reality. But most of all, my hope is to encourage and inspire and uplift you by the grace of God that you would do more mission work where you are and perhaps go somewhere else wherever God calls you. Because while it is true, as was said in our Sabbath school, you may be where God has called you. He can also call you somewhere else. And so uh, that's my hope for today. So part of Only Seven Ministries, our main goal is to share the gospel of Christ through meeting the needs of poor kids. So we started working in a garbage dump village, which means kids are living in the garbage dump where they dig for recyclables, sell them to the recycling shop, they get enough money to eat that day. And so we started there, and now we have uh, 10 villages on three different islands and 300 kids in our programs. We have uh, around 20 staff. We have two Bible workers. Uh, let's see here, 10 teachers. Uh, about 15 to 20 teachers' aides, and we have a field manager as well. Our programs run 24-7 in the Philippines, and so even when I'm not in the mission field, they're still running by God's grace, and so thankful for the world of modern technology that helps us to oversee our programs when we're traveling here on furlough. Um, our programs are really simple, and they're really replicable, uh, replicable really easily. So anyone could do this, and we're not upset or offended if someone else goes out and starts their own. Uh, what we do is we provide a branch Sabbath school in locations where there is none. And dozens and dozens of children attend. Kids that are not Seventh-day Adventists, they've never heard the message of God's word in its fullness, of his love and grace in its fullness. And I want to tell you, friends, the gospel isn't the gospel unless it's in its fullness. You have to understand the full character of God to really appreciate the power of the gospel. And so every Sabbath day, our teachers teach the kids in all these different regions, and we provide them fresh food, um, hot food, nice snacks. They come and they learn uh, all the Bible stories that my wife translates into Filipino, 
and uh, they have their coloring time, and they're singing, and their scripture verses. It's wonderful. It's everything that you wish that you would have during your children's Sabbath school. What I mean by that is not just your kids, but all the kids in the neighborhood. Wouldn't you like that? All the kids in the neighborhood come running, and all you have to say is, hey, we're doing something here today, and they just can't help but want to be there. And so part of our programs is that the kids who attend our Sabbath school, not only do they get taken care of for that brief hour every Sabbath, they feel special. They're included. They're part of a group. They've got a cute little uniform. Many of them do. We've got more uniforms coming. But that also means that we're going to sponsor that child. So those kids in our programs are required to stay in school. We make sure that if they, if they don't go to school, they are not in our programs. That's a heavy incentive for them to keep coming to Sabbath school and to keep them in their school. And so that's working out great for us. Then we also provide all the medical care they need. My wife and I do medical missionary work, but all of our staff know how to take care of kids. They know how to take them to the hospital if there's an emergency, which we did just have an outbreak in our jungle village of Haduan. Uh, we had about a dozen kids that were sick. Um, two of the children passed away, unfortunately, but the rest of the kids were saved. And so we're very grateful to God that we were able to have our staff there to help and bring these kids where they needed to be. And then our ministry, by God's grace, will pay for all the medicine and the care that they need. And uh, another aspect of our ministry is that we offer material support. We offer them food for, that will last them for the month. We give them clothing and rain boots, and as you probably know, it's a tropical country, so it's raining uh, a good three, four months out of the year pretty regularly. And so we give them solar lanterns. Many of our kids don't have electricity or running water, so in their little huts, they're doing their homework at night with a solar lamp. So those are just some of the things that we do. I believe in giving someone a fish while you teach them to fish. It's kind of hard to concentrate on learning something new when you're starving. So that said... I'm going to tell you a story now. If I can wake this up. All right, near death in the dark. We had a wonderful day in the mission field, and we had just come down off the mountain, the junglest mountains, and I'm wondering if we can turn this on. I can wander a little bit. hope you don't mind if I wander a little bit. Hello, hello. Can you hear me okay in the back? All right. And so uh, we had just had a wonderful day, a uh, great time in the mission field. We were all over the place, and we just got back three weeks ago, by the way. Uh, we're going back in January for four more months, and then we come back, and we've got to take care of some things, and then we go back again. But we had just had a wonderful uh, time. It was my videographer, myself, my wife, and our little boy, who is two and a half. His name is David, by the way. And so... We were on this high, you know, this, this high that you've just been working with Jesus hands-on and you see these people and they're very receptive and just, it's amazing. So we had stopped for a little bit. We were having just a little bit of ice cream and uh, it's late at night. It's about 10.30 at night. And we hop in the van, our medical missionary van, and we're cruising back towards where we're staying. And we're on the outskirts of a city, but we're still out in the country. And I see this light flashing in the road and it's some guy with a flashlight. I said, what's going on? And there's a crowd of people, about five, six people standing around here. He says, there's been a motorcycle accident. I said, would you like assistance? Yes. So I said, take me to, how many patients do we have? Okay, we have two. Take me to the one that's most injured. So I'm trying to triage patients, and I, I learned my lesson. Don't count on the locals to tell you who's hurt worse. <laughs> they don't really know all the time. But anyways, they take me to this gentleman who had a foot that looked like it was a chicken breast been ripped in half. Now, there's a reason I didn't show you pictures, okay? I want you to enjoy your meal today. 
Uh, I don't want to gross you out, especially it's a holy time on Sabbath, and there is a holy point to the story. So he looks pretty bad, but he's awake. He's lost a lot of blood, so I get him bandaged up and taken care of. And then I said, take me to the other guy. They take me to the other guy. There was a tricycle and a motorcycle had collided in the dark. And these guys drive like they've got someplace to be super fast. I mean, they're just like, okay, if I can go fast, I will. And they did. And when they crashed, uh, neither of them had helmets on. And so this other guy's laying in the road. He obviously has a traumatic brain injury. He's got blood coming out of his nose, out of his ear. He's got a laceration on the side of his head. And I'm thinking, well, Lord, why didn't they bring me to this guy first? You know, they thought he was okay because he kind of sat up and looked around and then laid down. I said, nah, it's not really okay. So I'm working on this guy. I, I, I don't know if he's had a, a cervical injury in his spine whatsoever, so I can't move him. I can't move his head. I'm trying to bandage him as best as I can. And my videographer is getting all this footage, and he's just like, his eyes are wide open. And I'm looking at this guy, and there's a crowd around me. And you want to guess what they were doing? taking videos I said you, you you should be praying for this man I mean when I walked up there I didn't know if he was alive so I get down there he's got a pulse pulse was good uh, 70 beats per minute I'm happy with that his breathing was good it was really good I'm happy with that but I'm not happy with the fact he's laying there obviously has a TBI and possibly some other internal bleeding we just have no clue how injured he is but I know he's He's going to die if we don't get him care. So I'm treating him. After I've treated him, I've been talking to him the whole time. And I'm telling him, hey, it's going to be okay, brother. Everything's going to be fine. There's not going to be a problem. Jesus is with you. Jesus loves you. He sent me here to tell you that. I'm telling him whatever I can because you don't know that he can't hear you. And you always assume your patient can hear you, always. If you're ever working with anyone that someone has told you is nonverbal or not communicative or they can't hear you, don't listen to that. You talk to them anyways the way I'm talking to you. Because what if you were trapped in the prison of a body and no one knew you could hear? How lonely would that be? So I'm talking to him and I'm thinking, this guy's probably scared. If he's coming in and out of consciousness, he's scared. I didn't test him further for awareness. It was just apparent to me he was out of it. But I was on the ground, I've got my hands on him, and I laid my hands on his chest, and, and I just prayed, God, this is for real, I'm really here, this is really happening, I don't care who hears, I just need you to give this guy another chance, please forgive this guy, give him another chance, I don't want him to die, you know, friends, it's kind of hard to bring people to Christ when they're dead, mm -hmm. so think about this, what had happened, I don't know anything about that guy, he could, have been a, he could have been a pedophile. He could have been a rapist. He could have been a murderer. He could have been a thief or a carjacker. I don't know anything about him, but one thing I do know is that he's a child of God. And I know that God loves him, and the only way he could be saved if he's alive long enough to hear the gospel. So I prayed for him, and I prayed for his family. I prayed that his family would come closer to Christ as well through the ordeal that he's going through. And so I wanted to share that story with you. And I wanted to share with you this scripture. It's in Matthew 25, starting at 37 through 40. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Not done it for him. Done it 
to him. It's a big difference, friends. It's not translated, you've done it for me. He says, you've done it to me. If one of you, if that was your son or your brother, don't you, don't you feel like it, what, what God helped me to do would have been doing it to you? Because that is part of you. That's part of who you are. God loves each person on this planet so much. And, and you got to understand what your life is really worth. Some of you may be struggling with low self-esteem. And I want to tell you, you don't need to worry about self-esteem. You only need to know how much Jesus esteems you. Your life is worth the life of the Son of God. Your life. And so I just say what an honor it is that to allow God to work in us, simple, unqualified people, that God qualifies when he calls us. When dealing with life and death, everything becomes clear. If you've ever been through a house fire, if you've ever been through a near-death experience, I have a friend who has, who I just met his sister today. It's pretty amazing. It, it opens your eyes to what's really important. Everything that you thought you cared about, everything that you were concerned about, everything that you thought really mattered, it's all going to fade away at some point. I pray that it would be on your terms right now today. So if there's anybody who's hindered by things, struggles and difficulties and issues in life, I'm praying that today you would think about the life and death reality because no matter how bad it might be for you or those that you love, I'm not going to say it could be worse. It could be the end. Mm. And because I do not know who may not make it home today from church, I just want to encourage you to open your eyes and ears and hear and see what the Lord wants to share with you about the goodness of his son, Jesus Christ. He is worth worshiping. All right, now let me tell you about the house of water and blood. It sounds scary. It's really not. Let's take a look at this video, and hopefully the audio will work. We're doing interviews today in the garbage dump. Lightning struck very close to us, very close. It looks bright out, but that's just because I'm in a dark place. It's not bright at all. It's raining. And we're waiting for the water to start coming into the house. Um, so this is Ate Irene's house. And she has a child that's bleeding uh, regularly for the last four years out of his bottom. Fresh blood. And she's got a daughter who I suspect has tuberculosis. Her daughter, her son is five and her daughter is seven. Um, so we're setting up an opportunity to go to the hospital with them. We're going to take them to the private hospital. I'm going to show you guys their home. This is where they live. It's actually very nice compared to a lot of the homes. That's our teacher, Jessa. And this is the little boy who's bleeding. And this little girl over here in blue is the one who can't breathe at night. Her lungs are hurting. So this is the rainy season, the beginning of the rainy season. We had uh, expected this might happen, but here it is. Asher's getting his documentary footage, but I wanted to give you some behind the scenes footage um, of what life is like here. This woman raises chickens and ducks and she's even got a bunny. So uh, you gotta eat, you gotta eat. 
She's not gonna eat the rabbit though. That's just for morale. <laughs> I hope you guys can appreciate uh, what it is that we're trying to do through Only Seven Ministries by giving hope to people by meeting their needs and sharing Jesus with them. Now this is Ate Irene's kitchen. She uses wood to cook. She has a gas tank she can't afford to fill, so she uses wood instead. We are getting wet in here. As you can see, there's no door, just a sheet. And there's holes in the roof, and, and so the floor's getting wet. And these are their bedrooms here, and that's going to get wet too. That's it for now, everyone. Keep us in your prayers. Ate Irene's house. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on. This woman had moved from a really heavily forested area far from any city where they couldn't have any work. So she moved to the garbage dump for a better opportunity. You hear what I just said? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I even have to ask myself, like, is, it, this is a little insanity. When someone moves into a garbage dump to have opportunity, because that's where the work is. So she's there with her kids. Her husband has severe asthma. He can't work. He's bedridden. I suspect he probably has resistant tuberculosis and she doesn't realize it. Nonetheless, her little boy is five years old and for the last four years, he's been bleeding fresh blood from his bottom. It's likely an amoeba. She's taken him to the hospital, but they just give him antibiotics for about a week and then they send him home. They don't even look at him. They just say, oh, he needs antibiotics. They send him home. I mean, this is not how you treat an amoeba. So I said to her, look, uh, we will take your son and your daughter, who I think might have TB, we'll take them to the hospital, and we'll get you fixed up. And it's interesting, she said yes. She took my phone number, and she was going to text me, and she never did, never did, for weeks. What I wanted to share with you about this story is that it's amazing to me when even it's your own children, how sometimes in that situation these people could be hindered from actually pursuing health even when they know it would help, even when they know it's, it's really easy, we're going to pay the bill by God's grace. She doesn't have to do anything. We're going to pick her up in the van. We're going to take her kids to the hospital. And if they're committed, we're going to pay for everything. We'll even give her money for the days she missed collecting garbage in the garbage dump. And still she didn't call. I want to say it's really kind of symbolic of a Christian, of us sometimes. We not only fight against... Um, the devil openly in this world, but we fight against self. We're fighting against laziness, ignorance, a lack of trust, and a lack of motivation. I think, honestly, this woman loves her kids. She just kind of given up that there's any hope. There is hope, friends. Finally, we reached out to her again, and just two days ago, she agreed she will let our staff take her and the kids to the hospital. And I said, we're not going to take them to the public hospital. Don't worry. We're going to take you to a private hospital where they can actually get the treatment that they need. Imagine us as sinners in our condition because we're unwilling to follow through on the sanctification process. Now, what do I mean by follow through? Do I mean that, like, you do the work? No, I mean that when we connect with Jesus Christ, he does the work in us. There's nothing that I'm going to be able to do unless I surrender to him day by day, moment by moment. It is God who works in you 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But my job, my part of that, my cooperation in that is not to white-knuckle it. Oh, I'll never do that thing I'm not supposed to do again, Lord. I'm going to do the right thing. No, that's all backwards. My job is to surrender myself to Christ. Say, Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, change my heart that I will want to do what is right and that I will hate that which is evil. That's my job. When you come into a close relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't help but be changed. But for so many Adventists around the world that I've spoken to, they don't even realize how many of them are white-knuckling it through their life. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm not going to do. And I'm going to help God save me. And they don't even think they're doing it. They don't even realize they're doing it. And what I want to say, friends, one of my greatest fears for our church is that there's a large group of people inside of it who are part of the Lord, Lord group. The group who Jesus described coming to him at his second coming and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he says, get away from me, you workers of iniquity, lawlessness. I never knew you. Notice what they did. They came to him as a corporate body, as a group. Didn't we do all these things? Here's two key words. We and do. They were works oriented and they were a corporate body. They thought because their names were on the books that they were saved and they thought because they did good things that they were part of God's true church. But friends, look at Jesus' answer. I never knew you personally. He wants to know us. He wants to know us on a personal level. Did you know that God has no grandchildren? How many people have thought, well, my granddad built this church. My mom and dad raised me in this church. And so what? Who is your savior? It's Jesus Christ. And so now I'm not preaching to you like you're an unsaved group of people. I'm preaching to you like I don't know where your heart is. And I cannot afford to travel this far with this amount of time invested and not share with you the hope that Jesus Christ is so much better than trying to add to the sanctification process. He will start the work. Who is the author and finisher of our faith? It's not you. You're sure you don't have the pen in your hand from time to time. Open the book of our lives and let him write. Come into connection with him. The Holy Spirit will convict. The Holy Spirit will change. It, the, look, otherwise all you're doing is good-looking things like the Pharisees did. Life is going to be a lot easier for us when we stay where we are sometimes. But it may not be God's plan for us to stay in the condition we're in. God wants us to grow in him. Now I'll show you a little bit about EJ's bath time. This is in one of the inner city groups that we work in. We work out in the jungleless mountains. We work inner city. We work in garbage dumps. So this is one of the city homes. And this is EJ. And my documentary guy, Asher, is getting some film footage. I thought I'd do some behind the scenes. So let's show you what his day looks like. Jay's in his living room. 
might be wondering if every house has a pump in the living room. It doesn't. That's not a house. That's a shack they built around the pump. It's pretty smart, really. A shack they built around the pump. Think about it. For EJ, he's got nothing. He's got walls with gaps like this, like cats can just walk through the walls and just come into his house. They've got cockroaches so big, you could put a saddle on it, maybe. <laughs> I mean, really, they, there's a lot of cockroaches there. Uh, they live in a one-room little shack. It's a metal shack with plastic and tarp and pieces of metal and holes in the roof. And when you ask these people, what happens during the rainy season? They say, we get wet. That's their answer. They don't have an alternative. Now, the thing is, this kid doesn't have a whole lot. His dad works. His mom works. He goes to school every day. He does all his chores. But it's funny to me the level of humility that EJ has. He let me into his house, showed me part of his life, knowing that this is going to be in the documentary film for the whole world to see. Now, why would this young man do this? Why would this 12-year-old boy let us into his house knowing how hard his life is, how dirty his house is, how gross his house looks, how poorly it stinks, there's sewage out in the street. Mm. Why would this kid do that? You know, it was happy, he was happy, friends, to show us his life. He had nothing to hold back, nothing to hide, no pretending. He just genuinely wanted to help. And when we asked him if he would do this because it would help us help other people see what life is like, he said yes, without hesitation. His parents said yes. We didn't offer them any money, although we did bless them after we got the footage. We wanted this to be a real, genuine offer, and it was. Now, I ask myself, in light of what EJ did, his humility and his attitude towards helping us with this documentary, what do I have in my life that's difficult compared to EJ? What big issues do I have in my life that are so powerful and so heavy and so troublesome compared to the life this kid has? You see, he's got everyday problems like we have, family problems, maybe there's some health problems. On top of that, he lives in a shack around a pump. He doesn't have any, uh, uh, he doesn't have any place to really sleep other than on the floor. He doesn't have a real kitchen. He doesn't have quite high-quality food. So take all your problems and add on top of that all those environmental factors. And then on top of that, the fact that he doesn't have opportunity. Because there's millions of children like him vying for the same position in school and the same position in a job. He's got hope, just a little bit. And I think about, he didn't complain a bit. He never complained to us about his life. He never said, oh, it's really hard, you know, it's really tough for me. For him, it's normal. He finds joy where he can. And I realized something. I never complain when I'm in the mission field. When I'm crossing bridges that look like something out of an Indiana Jones movie, literally, <laughs> and like there's holes in the boards, and it's 200 feet off the ground, and you're climbing up into the mountains, and there's malaria, and there's dengue fever, and there's all kinds of foodborne illnesses, and all kinds of uh, flies everywhere, and mosquitoes all over you all the time, and it's hot and sweaty. Every sermon I have given in the Philippines since 2016, I've been drenched in sweat. 
And this is the outfit I wear when I'm speaking. Just look at that. He's helping me to, uh, do you see that fly? I didn't plan that. He's not in on it. He's just showing you what life is like in the Philippines. Flies all over you. And, and then at night, by the way, they've got the spotlights on you so you can preach a crusade. And where do the bugs go? All over your face. And you're trying to tell people about Jesus, you know. I never complain about those moments, ever, because I knew going into it, this is going to be hard. But God will, will be with me. He will help me, and he loves me, and this is his work. I'm not alone. It's okay. If I suffer, I'm suffering for Christ with his help. And you know what's really cool about Jesus, friends? Everything he helps you do, he gives you a reward for. What? Not only does he help you, he empowers you. He rewards you. I mean, Jesus is worth worshiping, friends. <coughs> Excuse me. I do realize that I do complain, though. It struck me when I complain is the days when I'm not immediately in the mission field. I've had a little time to say, yeah, you know what? I could, I'm really tired of rice. I really could go for just something American, you know. You try to find a restaurant somewhere. You try to order anything that looks remotely close to a home meal. Can you understand where I'm coming from? You ever miss your home-cooked meal, you know? And then the waiter doesn't even come over to you. Ah, what's going on? And then when they get here, it's like, oh, I've been craving all day for this thing. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not available. You hear that a lot in the Philippines. It's not available. One time, I kid you not, I went to a lemonade stand, and all they sold was lemonade. And she's there, and the sign is on, and she's working. And I said, oh, can I get a lemonade? I'm sorry, we're out of lemons. Why are you here? <laughs> Close down and go home. <laughs> you get angry, you get frustrated, and then Jesus speaks to you quietly, and he says, you're here to serve all of them. They're not here to serve you. You don't get to just take a vacation and step out of my service so that you can go be treated like a prince. My son was never treated that way. Wow. So I learned from EJ. I learned from him. Prepare always at any moment to be in service. You should be in service the moment you wake up. Who's closest to you? It should be God. How can you offer yourself to him? You know what he wants from you the most, right? You. He wants you. The person he wants most in this world is you. He just wants time with you like any father. He wants to love you and have you give that love back. How many of you remember when, you're, when your kids were little and you'd come home and they'd wrap their arms around your neck, I love you, and they're hugging you? You miss that? How many of you have grandkids that they see you and they run up to you and they hug you and hold you? Our Father in heaven wants that from us. He made us in his, his image, and God is love. So he wants you first, and then he wants you to share that love with others. You cannot give what you do not have. So if you've spent time with our Savior in heaven, then you are going to have something to share. I've got a verse here. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. I realized that it's better to be refined in the fire than destroyed in it. There's going to be a fire in our lives, friends. You should be in it right now, or you may be in a different one later. Now, this I'm not one of these fire escape preachers, okay? 
I'm just telling you, there's going to be trials in life. There's going to be challenges. You know, I always tell people, you're going to have to work in this life no matter what. And you've probably seen homeless folks holding signs standing on the corner. They're working all right. You know the lengths they have to go through to just get that money? And they may make some good money, sure, but they are working. They're standing there. They're holding the sign. Then they've got to grab all their junk. Then they've got to find a place to sleep. And they've got to fight off the other homeless. And then they've got to find all their drugs and all their alcohol. It's work. You're going to work one way or the other. You might as well work in the Lord's will. You might as well work at a job where you can feel good about it. You might as well work doing something that's honorable instead of degrading yourself. You're going to struggle no matter what in this world, friends. You're going to either struggle in the world or you're going to struggle in Christ. But the beauty is when you struggle in Christ, the struggle is different. He gives us his yoke. Have you seen oxen yoked together? Have you seen animals that are yoked together? In the Philippines, we've got water buffalo. They yoke them together. The strongest will lead. The strongest will guide. The most experienced animal is going to guide that younger one, the weaker one. When Jesus gives us the yoke, it's not for us to carry. It's for him to carry us. The struggles we are going to go through with him are about self-denial. It's about being hated by the world. It's about giving up on the things we thought we should have or things that we loved and we shouldn't love. That struggle is so much better to deal with because when you're done on that particular struggle, it raises you up to a better view in the mountain. I always say that following Jesus, you're climbing a mountain in life. I've climbed 14ers. How many of you climbed mountains? Okay, you understand hiking is hard. There's not much oxygen. You're, you're kind of miserable, and you're, you're going up and up and up and up. But it is worth it. Every step, there's more beauty. That's the way it is with Jesus Christ. I'd realized that the mission field, friends, it refines us in ways we never knew we needed. The mission field is where? Wherever God calls you to be a Christian. That may be here now, but God can call you somewhere else like he did to Abraham, didn't he? Called him right out of his land. Called him to go somewhere else. The Israelites were in bondage 400 years. God didn't leave them there. He called them out. God called them where he wanted them to be. He will bring you somewhere or sometimes you'll go run into a place you shouldn't be. And God will say, I can use you here or I'm going to take you somewhere else. But the bottom line is I'm going to be better off in his will. I have free will, friends. You have free will. But you're going to be better off in Christ's will. May our free will be laid down at his feet and say, Lord, I freely give you myself. Help me to surrender my life. All the things I think I want and need, help me to give them to you. All the things that I have, help me to give them to you, Lord, because I don't really know what's best for me. And he knows what's best for you. I'll tell you a little bit about Sister Gwen after I show you this video. This is one of our sites down in Mindanao, the southernmost island in the Philippines. And this is a beautiful video. And we're just, I'm meeting these kids for the first time, but our staff has been running this group for seven months now. God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the 
so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Now, let's do it one more time, but be really loud, okay? My God is... Dapat daw laksan nyo, okay? Saka yung action, gagayin nyo ako. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Are you ready? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Amen. So let me tell you about Sister Gwen, the lady in pink. Uh, she had contacted us when she was an overseas worker in Thailand and said, I've found your ministry online. I'd like to join. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist in good standing. I'd like to give it a try. We said, well, let's talk. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord. And, and so we went ahead and we said, sure. So when she got back to uh, Mindanao in the Philippines, she had left her job as a teacher in Thailand, was, had retired, didn't want to spend retirement Tiring, I guess. Uh, she wanted to be active. So she started the class, and she did really well. Uh, what started to happen, though, is she started to struggle with some issues. Uh, when we arrived to see her, we took her out for a meal. We treated all of our staff. Some of them had never been to a restaurant in their lives. So it was amazing to see the look on their face when they went to a restaurant and got to eat fresh food that was cooked by someone else. And they just felt like kings and queens, you know. And we took her out to this nice little place and we talked with her and she was just full of sadness and tears and heartache. And what's going on? Oh, there's, there's an elder at church who's giving me a hard time. He's spreading rumors about me. He's saying that I'm taking money from you guys. And, and he's all these things that he's doing. And then a couple days later, we ended up going to the church where I had the honor of speaking and sharing Jesus there at, at that church. And I met the guy. I met some of the other people. And uh, I'm sure there was some truth to what she was saying. I heard from some other sources. He was giving her a hard time. But I noticed one thing. Sister Gwen had a crestfallen face. Her, she was just so upset. She couldn't rejoice in the moment that, like, we were here. We traveled all the way from America to be here with you so that we can share Jesus' love with you and with these children, you know. And uh, she said, after the church service and everything, she said, sir, please let me relocate. She wanted to move about three hours east on the island. And I was kind of sad about that because I thought, what about the kids? What about them? I understand there are interpersonal problems at church. I understand there may be some very rude people uh, I wouldn't want to say the word jerk, so I'll just say vipers. <laughs> because jerk's not in the Bible. But vipers is in the Bible. Jesus said that. I don't know who they are, by the way, so I'm not going around fruit inspecting. But Jesus called some church members vipers. And so there are some people who will spit poison at you, and they will wound your soul, and they will hurt you. And there are some times when we perceive people have offended us when they didn't. And there are some times when we just cause trouble for ourselves, and we end up walking away because we weren't deeply rooted in Christ anyways. But whatever the case was, Sister Gwen was willing to throw away an entire class of 30 kids because she was having problems with people at church. You know, there was a church 15 minutes down the road she could have transferred to. 
an Adventist church. But that wasn't even an option for her. She just wanted to get out of this area. You know why? Because she was focused on everything else but Jesus Christ. So after much prayer, I gave her what she wanted. I let her relocate, but not with an assignment. I said, if you want to go, that's okay. I won't hold you back, but we're not going to start another site with you. I care for her. We're trying to work with her, help her to keep her eyes on Jesus Christ. But I cannot afford to lose another group of kids because someone's upset with someone in church. Now, here's the good news. We didn't lose that group. We took her assistant aside and said, would you like to teach? And she said, yes. And you know what? She's doing a better job than her former teacher ever did. And so I'm just blown away by the fact that here we are telling these kids how much Jesus loves them. We've traveled across the world to tell you Jesus loves you and let us tell you who left heaven to come here and show you how much he loves you. It's Jesus. Here's your distribution. Here's your brand new shoes. Here's your food for the next two months. Jesus loves you. Oh, by the way, bye kids. No more Sabbath school. No more programs. No more help. I just wonder sometimes, and the reason I'm sharing this with you, is how many times do we get into interpersonal issues at church? We're upset about the color of the carpet, or we're upset about the way someone said the prayer, or the way someone cooked the meal, or the way something, 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 it doesn't even matter. I know it's happened to you. If you've spent any time in a church, a church is filled with people. How many of you ever have arguments with the person you love the most? Okay. So even more so, you're going to be able to have arguments with people you're not even that close to. People that you say happy Sabbath to when you go through the motions. How are you? How was your week? On and on. Okay, let's stop there. We don't want to get too deep. We might become friends. That might happen to us from time to time in a church. I would express to you my desire that we have an EOC policy. An EOC policy, that's an acronym that God helped me to come up with many years ago. Eyes on Christ. The next time someone comes to you, they've got an attitude or an issue or something trivial that's getting in the way between you and sharing Jesus. You can tell them, I'm sorry, I have an EOC policy. I've got to keep my eyes on Christ. I really don't have time for it. If you've done something wrong, say you're sorry. Ask for forgiveness from God and from that person and pray with them. If they think you've done something wrong, but you haven't, you can clear it up. You can pray with that person. You can pray to God about it. And that's enough. Move on. And if you've done nothing wrong, you either don't address it and keep sharing Jesus or you steamroll it like you've got nowhere to be but somewhere fast. And I mean squash it. The moment it starts, whatever the distraction is from your mission to share Jesus, squash it. Do it in love, but do it. Smash that thing. Whatever the problem is, do not let it get in the way of you sharing Jesus with others. <coughs> what matters most? My greatest regret in life is not for the first 18 years of my life where I didn't know Jesus. It's not all those things that I did when I was in the world. It's not for the times I backslid when I was a younger Christian, it's not for all the sin I committed in my life. My greatest regret in my life is what I did not do once he came into my life. What I did not allow him to do in me and through me, with me, since I met Jesus. Friends, when Jesus comes to take us home, which I believe will be very soon, mm -hmm. sooner than we can imagine, I think, will I have something in my hands 
that could have been put to his work or to his use? Well, I have talents buried somewhere in my heart and mind that I just didn't want to give up to God and use and invest. Well, I've had opportunities to share Jesus that I missed because I was scared of rejection. Or I did, well, it's scary, Lord. I can't just up and leave and go to another country. Neither could any of the other people who did it. And they did it. Certainly, God wants to use you where you are right now, this moment. And certainly, he can continue to use you where you are if you surrender your lives daily to him. But he also may call you somewhere else. He may call you into another field. I have to respond to that call. You may be wondering, how do I know where I'm supposed to be? My answer came to me when I was in the mission field. Wherever you are the best version of a Christian that you can be is where you should be. And that's often not in comfort in surroundings you're familiar with. It's often in places where you're uncomfortable, in situations that you're not used to. So I would pray if, if I was still in this position, God help me to know where I'm supposed to be. I know now where I'm supposed to be in the mission field. Four days after I got back on furlough from the field, I said, all I do here is spend money. That's all I do here. I try to share Jesus with some people, but you know, Americans, they all have what they need. So I try, and I serve in my church, and I share Jesus there, and I try to encourage the brethren, and any chance I can, I might do a Bible study with someone, but it's so limited for me. Because in the mission field, friends, I will literally have hundreds of people who want to know the name of Jesus Christ. And they do not know how much he loves them. Nine testimonies, page 19. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Where will you be the best version of a Christian you can be? God knows. It might be here. It may be somewhere else. But I know this. You won't find out just trying to guess on your own. You will only find out with a closer walk with Jesus Christ, which we all need. And if there's anyone here who thinks, I'm doing fine with the Lord, please come talk to me later. Because we're not doing okay. If anyone here thinks, I'm doing fine with God, I'm doing what I should, please come talk to me. And I will show you from the scriptures the error of that arrogant thought process. Because I have at times thought, I'm doing all right. You're not okay without Jesus Christ leading you constantly, surrendering your life constantly. And if you think there's any part of you that can do it on your own, we can't. We desperately need our Savior. Before I close, I'll tell you the difference between a saint and a sinner. Jesus says there's none good but God. And people don't understand what a sinner is. Well, let's, a saint, excuse me, let's talk about what a sinner is, someone who needs a savior. They're a sinner who needs a savior. A saint is a sinner who has a savior. We are not better than anyone else out there, but we are better 
off. So I would encourage you, friends, to get to know our Savior more and more because we all need him more and more. Let's have our closing song, 373. The chorus to this has